Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noel, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Dina Prastos, you are the CEO and founder of Indigo River, and that can be found at indigoriver.com. Welcome to Listening with Leaders. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I'm excited to be here. So just, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've done a little bit of research on you, and you're doing incredible work. You're an architect with a graduate degree in, in engineering, and you work on the water. You're a water architect. I guess that'd be, be the best way to describe it. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up doing that. And then we'll get into what you do, what Indigo River is all about. Absolutely. So yeah, I am a waterfront architect, which if you would have asked me 10, 15 years ago what that is, I would have said it doesn't exist. I don't know. Maybe someone who works on waterfront homes. Um, not what I do. I work often on waterfront infrastructure. Uh, so projects of ours typically are things like ports and marinas and bulkheads and uh, seawalls and jetties and keys and wharfs and anything kind of built up between water and land. Um, and how I got into it, I have a kind of a generic background in terms of architecture. I went to a five-year architecture program and I finished and I got a civil engineering degree as, as a master's. Um, it was kind of around the 2007, 2008 bubble. And I thought the architecture market might be a little bit more difficult, might be a little bit um, wise of me to differentiate and expand my kind of base knowledge in terms of technical expertise in, in civil engineering, oftentimes when economies kind of turn down the engineering turns up. Um, and so that was something I just did to kind of get my bearings entering the workforce. And so when I did start working, I worked for a contractor again, that was um very concerted effort to round out my practical knowledge of how things, how and why things are built and what the conversations are happening um, in the field. And then just by chance and luck now, if you want to call it that, I was uh, placed on a waterfront project, the Staten Island Ferry Terminal for the first 18 years of my career. And from there, many of my other projects, um, even before I uh, started Indigo River, were focused on the waterfront. Just it's a bit of niche expertise that... Um, kind of opened up the door into this whole other world that I could use my agency as an architect uh, and focus it on waterfront infrastructure. Are there many people out there like you that do waterfront architecture? I, there are some that dabble in it, but I, I don't know anyone else who has focused a career on it uh, by any means. There are certainly architects that focus on infrastructure, more kind of generically of treatments of different types of infrastructure, but not necessarily waterfront infrastructure. And uh, I'm thinking that especially because you're on the East Coast in the New York City area, you probably are pretty darn busy. <laughs> we, we are. And now in this moment, I mean, yeah, things are kind of accelerating in terms of climate change awareness and climate adaptation efforts. And so certainly it's a um, kind of poised time to be specializing in this area that we focus on the most vulnerable condition in terms of sea level rise and flooding and things that um, we're very comfortable working in this space. And there is more and more work uh, that will be required in this space as, as time goes on. Tell us a little bit about your company, Indigo River. Sure. So Indigo River, uh, founded in 2018, we have a group of about 20 uh, 
planners, architects, and engineers, and all of us have a passion and kind of mission to focus on waterfront, and that comes through different forms of how we interact with the water and how our histories have um, kind of had that interaction with water. And the different types of engineers that we have range from coastal and naval and marine and structural and geotechnical, uh, and then the different types of architects that we have. We have naval architects who focus on floating things. We have landscape architects, and then I'll say traditional architects, but not in the sense of working on buildings, working on waterfront infrastructure. Uh, and then certainly we have planners as well, environmental planners, climate adaptation planners. Um, so we we all have slightly different backgrounds. Many of us also spent a portion of our career in the field working for a contractor or in the construction realm, um, which brings a kind of level of empathy to the design world when we're sitting at a desk and putting together a design that we can, you know, imagine and remember the conversations taking place in terms of how will this get built and um, kind of that factors into our design and our process. So with with global warming and potential significant sea level rises, how how do you think we adapt to that, especially in littoral areas like New York City, New York City Harbor? You know, here in California, we've got the San Francisco Bay, Los Angeles and Long Beach Harbors. I mean, there's some serious consequences here. How there are, and there are, there are many different ways that are are being looked at and being tried uh, currently, and and some at kind of more regional scale and neighborhood scale, and then the, the practicality of individual site owners owning individual sites and what can be done to protect and mitigate against risk. Um, I mean, sometimes it's a matter of a change of elevation. If there's a hard wall, a hard vertical, that there's the seawall or bulkhead raising that elevation. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of reprogramming space. So if it's a, a residence on the water, that maybe the ground floor needs to be changed into something like storage and parking, and then any livable, occupiable space is elevated above. Uh, so there's a number of ways. There's also more um, larger scale infrastructure projects in terms of floodgates and levees and things of that nature as well. So there are different scales that we work at um, and different types of solutions that are out there. Are you engaged in much long-term planning or is it just, or is it mostly just, you know people come to you with projects that they're looking you know say over the next 18 to 24 months? Both. And that's one of the things I, I, I love is that we work on a kind of a range of timelines. So sometimes the design life will be to the year 2050 or the year 2080 that we're looking at, you know, far at, in advance for public works and public infrastructure projects. Sometimes it'll be with a, you know, residential owner that wants to fix a seawall that's failing or add a, you know, floating dock to be able to enable recreational access. Um, so it's, yeah, it ranges and everything in between. Um, huh. Well, what, you're obviously have a passion for this. What gets you excited in the morning to get up and go to work? Well, I live on the water, which is also great. So I have many different ways of interacting. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll get up and I'll go for a paddle even before I start my day and kind of exercise and get out in nature and, and spend some time on the water and then come and have, you know, a series of meetings. But um, at the end of the day, what excites me about what I do is the the kind of the scale of impact of working with different individuals on different types of projects that really are looking to leave our built environment in a in a better way than it is currently. And are, are you limited just to the New York area or do you work or you, or you have much broader reach? We work all over. I'd say the base of our work, our core portfolio is within New York Harbor, but we work kind of up and down the East Coast. We've worked in Canada. We've worked in the Caribbean. We've done design projects in the Middle East. So we've um, worked in many different locations. And I serve on a committee that's worked a little bit with NASA looking at outside of Earth of different kind of occupiable spaces and habitats and, and what that means for an architect to assert their agency in those realms as well. That's got to be interesting. <laughs> it is. It's it's really, really great. I love it. <laughs> uh, 
I read a, I read a headline yesterday, I think, that said that that Manhattan's sinking. The weight of the buildings is pushing the island down. What, what's that all about? So that's, I mean, that's not new. Any any building, I mean, you look at Leaning Tower of Pisa, same thing. There are geotechnical issues with the soil that over time, um, the load bears its weight and the soil can't support it. contain it or support it. Um, so it's not it's not anything new. I mean, when it's in a headline, people get nervous. Uh, I have friends who I've told, yeah, well, Battery Park City wasn't originally part of New York. It's built up on, you know, excavation from other areas. And that kind of blows their mind of um, kind of the, the scale of, of what we construct as, you know, man versus what we think is natural. And is that going to create, is, is the subsidence going to create problems for, for New York City? I mean, problems, challenges, opportunities, depends how you frame it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, what's the most interesting project you're working on right now? So one project I'm really excited to be working on, I'll, I'll talk about two because they're, one is more typical and one is a little bit atypical for us um, that we've kind of grown into a, a new space, a needed space. But um, one project that we're working on uh, is if you're familiar with Governor's Island in New York City, they're, um, they have, you know, asserted that they will be the climate solution center of the future, um, not only of New York, but of the country and of the world. And two of their existing peers uh, are in dire need of rehabilitation or reconstruction entirely. So we won the bids and we're working right now. We're in early phases. We've done kind of the due diligence of, you know, what the site conditions are. And we're starting to design what those two new peers will be, how they will um, serve the, the future climate solution center of the world, which is a really wonderful opportunity. And we're excited to be working on it. We've worked on other peer projects, but none really to um, kind of assert that they are the Climate Solution Center and to have quite literally the landing onto the Climate Solution Center be one of our projects is um, an honor and something that we're very excited about. Mm -hmm. um, another project that I was mentioning is, is a little bit less typical for us is early in 2020, we, like many um, kind of companies out there, we're looking to kind of diversify our portfolio and, and expand into other areas just as a um, as a kind of way to balance and, and open up more doors for us, not knowing kind of what the market held. And so we being that we work on waterfront infrastructure, for example, we work on several offshore wind port facilities, um, and we know, generally speaking, who the the main players are in terms of construction and who the who the contractors are going to be to build these facilities. And we know also the ambitious goals of uh, of the state and federally as well in terms of renewable energy and specifically offshore wind. Um, and so we know the the scale of of work that is ahead of us with these goals and the funding that's been put in place. But in terms of the actual design, the engineering, and then the construction thereof, there's not a workforce presently ready to um, be deployed. And so we got into a little bit of workforce development specifically for offshore wind. So we built a offshore wind training facility that we launched earlier this year and is uh, offering training classes to get involved in offshore wind. Uh, you would never think about that, <laughs> but, but it makes perfect sense because if you're offshore wind, you've got to have pylons that go they're broad, they're they're heavy and big and huge, and they've got to go down a long ways. They do, and there's also yeah, there's working at heights elements, there's oh, sea yeah. survival elements. So there are some specialty kind of beyond the the general OSHA requirements for a, a typical landlocked job site. There are some very specialty um, training that is required, and uh, there are certified programs out there that offer accreditation. And so we opened up one of these programs that are are currently certifying and accrediting the individuals that come through. So, so they they have to go through all these safety courses and learn learn all the how to survive out there. 
They yeah. do. And, and part of, I would say also being that we're very active in the climate adaptation space, we um, kind of have another level of awareness around um, kind of environmental justice issues as well in terms of workforce development and, and where people are coming from to, to get to work, to get to training. And so one of the things we did with the training school is that we we fitted out and fabricated it on a barge. So it's on a floating platform and thereby we have the ability to have it in multiple locations. New York has 520 miles of shoreline. So anywhere that has five feet of depth on those 520 miles, we can reloc relocate the training and offer a different catchment area of who is able to attend the training. So we don't have people from the Bronx coming down to Staten Island. Right. So are, have you been doing that, moving the barge around? We our current our first location has been in Staten Island and it's there, but we're looking at a couple uh, Brooklyn locations in the near future and getting the the training lined up for those locations. I, so I guess you, you need to have a critical mass of students in order to make to justify the move. Um, yes, yes and no. The, I mean, the training size themselves it's limited in terms of um, this. The certification requires that it's one trainer for six students and you can have two classes together. So they're very tight knit students. But yeah, to to justify the move, we'll want to have a couple classes lined up. Got it. That's really interesting. You know, this is something that somebody that doesn't know anything about the business, you'd never think about all of these different issues that. No, but I think it comes to that mentality of what you said before. Is it a problem? Is it a challenge? Or is it an opportunity? Right. And we saw it as an opportunity because we kind of saw the writing on the wall of what our current workforce is and what will be needed in terms of what the goals that have been set are. And I'm sure the contractors that are going to be employing these people are thrilled that this kind of training is going on. Yep, we've. I mean, since our uh, audit, we've been fully booked, so it's scanning momentum. And I, the other thing I like is that you can move it around. You can move it around the New York area, and to your point with environmental justice, you can tap into a lot of populations that might yeah. not other, otherwise have an opportunity to get these this training because these are going to be high paying jobs. Absolutely, and this this was something that came directly out of to your kind of the spirit of your podcast in terms of listening. We met with different unions and heard from them that one of the biggest obstacles and biggest challenges isn't necessarily the time or the money, but the commute to be able to access the training. And so here was a way for us in our background in terms of, you know, floating assets and floating architecture, a way to serve that and kind of answer that call. Wow. That is so neat. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Some really great stuff. So what is it that's unique that you bring to the table? I think in many ways our the entire firm kind of has a, a mission and values, but I've, as a founder, kind of embedded that in in many different areas of, of how we work and it permeates um, kind of any different type of task that we will be working on. And so that's something that um, it attracts talent that are like-minded individuals, but it also gives way to kind of a greater satisfaction than whatever the, the literal work is at the moment. There is kind of something bigger that we are uh, serving and it is something that uh, can't take any cast any blame or or um not productive to kind of complain about the way things are when we inherit them but there is opportunity to make them better for the next generation so that's something that really does permeate through much of our work and you how do you spend your time i i, I as the founder and ceo of an organization that's pretty active how, you don't get a lot of drawing time i would imagine yeah, I'm not. I'm not at the uh, the drafting table or in AutoCAD <laughs> anymore much. Um, but I, I certainly am attending high level meetings and looking for next opportunities. And we do have weekly meetings with everyone on our team that we uh, go through kind of what the latest is and work. Uh, very important to me and to us is career development, and so understanding 
where people are in their career and what they're looking for um, and finding opportunities for them to grow is something that is embedded deep in our culture. And so that's something that um, I do a, a fair amount of kind of work internally and then also work externally to to look for opportunities to find to continue to grow our team. Um, so the, as you mentioned, notice this is a podcast is called Listening with Leaders. And I'm a person that's all about listening as a lawyer turned peacemaker. Tell me about listening in your business. How critical is it? It's imperative. I mean, there's, for example, if if we're working on a flood mitigation solution that there's a building that's being flooded, we can look at and propose, you know, half a dozen solutions. Uh, maybe some of them are temporary, may, maybe some of them are are um, permanent. But if we're not listening to the the asset owners about, you know, what their budget is or the operations team and the maintenance crew about what their capabilities are, certainly possible that we could propose a system that technically is feasible um, but in in practice would not make sense. And that's happened before where an owner will ask for something that's a temporary deployable solution, but they have two crew members that there's no way that they could feasibly deploy a system in an emergency um, at the scale that they would need to, to have an effect. And so there's importance of, of listening and getting the full picture um, early on from multiple parties and not just kind of taking one bit and running with it because that that could be a mistake and require backpedaling later so it strikes me in listening to that that knowing how to ask the right questions is it becomes pretty important you got absolutely got to ask the question that the owners or the project people aren't asking themselves because they don't they don't know to ask the question yeah it's it is we have questionnaires and we have um kind of evaluations that we will set up early on in a project depending on what the type of the project is but it does become very important to have these kind of stakeholder interviews early in the process to understand um, how the different parties are involved, what the different responsibilities are, what the budgets are, what the schedules are, um, a, a lot of different factors that come into play before a successful design can be designed and or constructed and deployed. I, um, in my former life, I was a, a trial lawyer and I did a lot of construction litigation uh, on some pretty big projects. <laughs> I know that construction can get very messy Absolutely. How do you guys deal with the messiness? Uh, it does come down to, I mean, good, clean habits of documentation and reporting. And um, I mean, that's that's the core of it is an awareness and training of an, our individuals to make sure that if there is something that they see, you know, potentially unsafe or um, that they are not sure about that they'll escalate it and that they'll document it and report it uh, appropriately so that if it is escalated, we can address it. Um, or if it's something that's looked over, but it's documented, we can go back and kind of sort through after the fact. Do you do, much, do, you do much project management yourself, the firm? We do. We do a fair amount. We, um, in some projects, act as owner's rep. So we will manage those process, those um, sometimes it's the construction team or design team or the environmental review team, whatever, uh, whatever the, the requirement is. Huh. I'm I'm sort of sort of in shock and awe <laughs> <laughs> of what you do when I think about. I mean, I, I go back and think about some of the projects that I was involved in many many years ago, or forty years ago. Um, and thinking about what you do, I just it kind of boggles my mind. I think there's going to be a growing need for for the kind of work that you do. Are there are there younger architects that that come through to get training from you that that are interested in doing the kind of work that you're doing? Honestly, not as many architects as I would hope, um, but more, we certainly have, we attract planners and environmental specialists and uh, engineers. It's it's more common as there's, you know, 
very clear tracks for marine engineering or coastal engineering or structural engineering um, that relate to the waterfront. But within architecture, it's actually it's a little bit more difficult because the by and large, the, the mass focus within architecture is buildings. Right. Um, and so it's not always, you know, the most glamorous to think about working on waterfront infrastructure, uh, but the need <laughs> is certainly there. And if you can tie it to, yeah, protecting all of those upland buildings and assets, um, it's, it, I think it takes the right kind of individual that is attracted to that sort of challenge. Do you get an opportunity to, to talk to young architects or students of architecture about the work that you do? I do. And I serve. So I, I work with the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, which is the body that license or, or facilitates licensure for architects. And so on that committee, I also work as a licensing advisor, which I do. Um, I had a very kind of messy path myself in terms of getting my license. And so I look to lighten the load on, on others that maybe have atypical experience, but are still interested in, and see the value in becoming licensed. Um, and so that's something that I, I work as a licensing advisor. And then I also serve as the chair on a committee that focuses on the future architect and what their role will be. Hmm. How much, uh, how much of mo my brother-in-law is an architect uh, in Santa Barbara, very successful. Uh, I'm, but it's not, not all, not all architects get engineer, have an engineering background. It strikes me that in doing the work that you're doing, you would almost need to have a pretty strong engineering background because so much of the design work has to be is going to be structural. I mean, because to your point, you're dealing with the geotechnical, the you know, the soil. You're dealing with water pressure. You're dealing with, um, you know, you're dealing with massive, sometimes massive projects. It strikes me that engineering is an important segment of all of that. It is. It certainly is important to be able to speak the same language. Something that I'll say, I I went into engineering maybe a little bit out of my own insecurity of my technical knowledge at the time, and also the kind of the economic change that was afoot. So. Um, I think, yeah, looking back now, it makes sense that I've, you know, formed a company kind of with those two backgrounds, um, although I am not a licensed engineer. And, and when I introduce myself, I typically say I'm an architect. Um, and I, I focused on my engineering degree out of a desire to round out my architecture experience. Um, and so kind of in the spirit of empathy of understanding what the engineers are talking about in the spirit of empathy of understanding what the contractors and the construction crews are talking about. Um, that was important to me. But that said, the role of the architect is more or less the, the conductor of the symphony. And there are many different disciplines of engineering that you don't need this, the, the deep specialty in those different tracks. If, as long as you're able to listen and communicate um, and understand, you know, effectively what, what the, the, the parameters are and keep the conversation moving forward and also understand from the client and the operations and the regulators. Um, there's a lot of listening that takes place, but I don't think it's required that um, an individual have an engineering experience to assert their agency as an architect in this space. I see what you're saying. So, I mean, I like I like the metaphor, you're the conductor, because I know in these projects, there's a massive number of moving pieces. And if you're out there, you're the one saying, okay, this is what's got to happen. And you have, a, you have enough knowledge to know to know to know the nomenclature and the language so you can communicate with people and you also have enough knowledge that you can again ask the right questions ask the questions that nobody else is asking yeah and that was i mean i think even it took when i went through my licensure i i did not have like i said a very typical architecture background i worked for a contractor i worked for an engineer and very small portion of my career did i work under an architect just kind of the minimum requirement to to satisfy to be able to get licensed and the 
the experience that I had taking the exams was that there's a lot of things that I don't know and I need to kind of get a, a base minimum competency around them and know what I don't know. Um, and that's very much applicable to practice as well. There, you, No one is going to know everything, but you kind of figure out the base minimum competency you need in an area and you find a specialist that can satisfy whatever the need is and communicate and, and kind of navigate that environment and then bring it back to the table of whatever the you know design intent or the the, the program is. Wow. Again, mind-boggling. <laughs> well, I've, I've got one more question for you, uh, and I'll let you get on with your busy day. What's one thing about yourself that we would never even think about and know about you that unless you revealed it to us? Well, I grew up in Alaska. I've worked in the Middle East, and I now find myself with a company focused on New York Harbor. So that's kind of a extreme pivot and and transfer and um process there's that a, i've evolved through <laughs> there's a story from alaska to new york city yeah with a pit stop in the middle east in the desert yeah <laughs> all right well thank you you know i really uh enjoyed this call it's been really informationally informative and i'm sure my my uh, listeners have enjoyed it too thank you so much for your time thank you for having me doug it's my pleasure Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.